I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres or give you insights into your favorite authors and to keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Today on Just the Right Book, we've got two different interviews. Um, both, I'm, I'm just delighted that I had the time to talk to them. One uh, will be with Ann Bogle, who is a, a well-known podcast host for her show called What Should I Read Next? She's also the writer of a very popular blog called Modern Mrs. Darcy, and now she's got a book out called I'd Rather Be Reading. We're also going to be talking with Dan Sheehan, who I had invited on the show because he's the editor of a segment called Bookmark on a website called LitHub. And if you don't know about LitHub and you don't know about bookmarks, uh, I'm excited that you'll get to learn about them. They were both, both Dan and Anne were fun uh, to talk to. But first, my discussion with Dan Sheehan. My ending up with Dan on the show came about at the uh, annual trade show. I ran into Morgan Entrican, who's the head of uh, Grove Atlantic, and an old friend in a powerhouse. And I was telling Morgan how much I loved Literary Hub because that was started under the under his auspices. And I told him I particularly loved the bookmark section of the website. So he says, "Oh, you know, don't worry about it. I'll get I'll get that person on your show. That'll be." Great fun. Well, little did I know that um, it would be you, Dan, who's not merely the bookmarks editor and is, in your own right, a gifted Irish fiction writer, a journalist, an editor. Uh, your writing has appeared in the Irish Times, GQ, Los Angeles Review of Books, Guernica, Words Without Borders, Epiphany, Electric Literature, and um, you, in fact, were the recipient of the 2016 Center for Fiction Emerging Writers Fellowship. So the minute I read all this uh, about you, I took a peek at your debut novel, uh, Restless Souls, which is... Uh, I was a little annoyed I had to come uh, to the show to interview you, and, and it meant I had to put down the book. So with that long introduction, I am just thrilled to welcome Dan Sheehan to Just the Right Book. Well, thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. It's, it's, uh, it's lovely to be here talking to you. Uh, so how'd you get your – how'd you come to um, – uh, the literary hub. Well, sort of a, a strange route, really. Um, I moved over about five years ago from from Dublin to New York to work for the uh, Pan American Center, um, and I stayed with them for a year. And then I went to work for a film production company and a magazine and a couple of bars and sort of a, a little bit of a roundabout way. Uh, I ended up. Um, at Little Hope, I, I was speaking to Andy Hunter, who is one of the publishers of Lit Hope and Electric Literature, and um, we got chatting about a position that was opening and a new vertical that they were starting up, and uh, that was Bookmarks, and it seemed like a good fit, so we went from there. So describe for everybody what Bookmarks does. So Bookmarks, I guess, 
we kind of call it the Rotten Tomatoes for books, um, which is a place where all of the literary criticism online can be consolidated, aggregated, and curated so that um, readers will have all the information they need before deciding on what book to buy or, or to take out of the library. Um, myself and my staff, we track about 150 different outlets, um, everything from kind of the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the way to newer lit blogs and um, uh, kind of smaller sites, smaller journals, and uh, we add reviews. Now, when a, a new book comes out and it gets two or more reviews, we create a book page for it, and that page is constantly updated so that you get an idea of what the critical conversation around a book is. Um, so if you're a, if you're a kind of a large, a, a big-name release, you know, maybe Joyce Saunders or Zadie Smith, um, you might have on your page 40 or 50 different reviews. Um, but if you're, you know, if your book is from University Press, if it's a poetry book, um, just a smaller release in general, you'll still have the same page. You know, it'll, it'll exist there, it'll look the same, it'll just have fewer reviews on it. But it kind of puts all books on an equal footing um, and allows people to digest quickly and easily um, all what the opinions around around a book are in the in the critical community. So, Dan, I find I have never used it to like go back and look at everything. I open the I open the Lit Hub newsletter when I get it. It seems like it comes out on Thursday or Friday. That's right. Um, and I read it right then and there. So I don't go. I've never gone underneath there. But are you saying that you? literally are aggregating a review of any book that appears in one of the 150 publications that you follow? That's right, yeah, as, as best we can. You know, I mean, we have... That's crazy! Uh, it, it's a <laughs> lot, all right. And we, we, decided, we decided at the beginning that we wouldn't, we wouldn't um, sweep the data, that every time you see a curated pull quote, for a review, uh, it will have been put together by a human, uh, assessed and given a rave, positive, mixed or pan designation based on, on the read of one of our staff members. So there's a lot of it out there and, and um, more each week, which I suppose is a good thing, you know. Well, you know, one of the things that I think your bookmarks do, and I spoke to Morgan about linking bookmarks to our RJ Joya site or Just the Right Book site, which I will follow up on, is if you've got, because the reviews are aggregated, what you begin to see is a theme about a book, right? You get a sensibility from the collectiveness of the reviews. Now, if it's a debut novel from a university press, you might only get one review, but often it seems like there's at least uh, two uh, that absolutely you, because if it's a debut writer that's getting reviewed at all, it's already got some light shining on it, either because the person's history or the PR or for a variety of other reasons that get it the get it to have attention. Exactly, exactly, and I, I think you know there there are those who would say that. The, some of the, the larger outlets, the ones that used to be able to make or break a book, like the, um, the New York Times, the New Yorker, that their ability to influence sales numbers has diminished. I think that's probably true. Mm-hmm. But I think with the ability for reviews to go viral, I think their reach is even greater. And maybe more importantly, uh, 
the reach of smaller of, of of good reviews, good essays about books and smaller outlets, um, the ability of those to go viral uh, also makes a huge difference. You know, um, I think of something like Four Columns, um, which is new, relatively new site, um, and it's producing some absolutely wonderful criticism and some really great essays. You know, uh, across different disciplines, um, and that without without the ability to take off online, without um, sort of the social media word of mouth, uh, that would be a long time getting a foothold in the critical conversation, mm-hmm. uh, even though it, it, it deserves very much to be there. So uh, that that is hardening. You, could, you can have a book that otherwise wouldn't be covered in, in uh, you know, anywhere. the larger, older outlets, anywhere, really. Yeah. Uh, and it has an ability to, to kind of, stay above water thanks to thanks to more and more outlets covering it you know well you know because one of the things that i feel um that's generally happening uh probably not to the extent that some would like is but there's a more because of all the platforms that are available now there's a more egalitarian notion of what might get covered right yet Mm. i hear you know, from the authors who come to the bookstore or people who are on the show or, you know, friends of mine who are published authors, that the frustration is that that same egalitarian width of landscape also means there's a lot of damn noise. And mm. to to get heard in that noise is that much more challenging. Which side of that conversation do you fall down on? You know, it's, it's a tricky one because with more, you know, with closing book sections um, uh, in, in newspapers and with sort of more of a focus on immediate hot takes about a book that's coming out or, or about um, an author or, or kind of a, a moment, um, you get a lot more content, as you say, a lot more noise, but it doesn't necessarily mean the quality is going to mm-hmm. be raised and it certainly doesn't mean that the people writing these pieces are going to be paid more or in some cases paid at all and I think that's always no matter what the industry if you um, if you add more and more participants and you reduce the wages and you make it harder to um, you know harder to make a living doing it then I think the quality is going to suffer there's still plenty of excellent criticism being published every week but what I'm noticing as we track some of the publications is that you see syndicated reviews from the bigger outlets appearing more and more in smaller papers and regional mm-hmm. publications, which is quite sad because it means they've had to let some books columnists go or maybe they just can't afford to um, to pay them enough to, to keep them there, um, which is a shame. So, I mean, some people would argue that the fear of the blowback from a very negative review and the instability of the job market means that people would be more reluctant to to really engage with the book and to, to kind of write their true feelings about it uh, outside of those who have um, tenure jobs or, or staff jobs in the bigger outlets. I've, I've, I've seen evidence that would prove that, and I've seen evidence that that would disprove it. So I'm still I'm still a little bit on the fence about whether or not that's true. But I do. It might be trending towards your more negative assessment of it. I think it it might be it might be. But I mean, like everything, there, it, it takes a while for people to to figure out how to navigate a new landscape. And you know, I'm I'm seeing some of those effects in in newspaper websites. I'm seeing the more negative effects, but I'm also seeing a lot more. Um, literature dedicated sites appearing online and and being able to snag 
strong critical minds and, and being able to uh, feature them regularly and feature their their insights regularly. So that's happening at the same time. So I think there is good and bad, certainly, for, for this, I guess, in, <laughs> at its worst, deluge of of, of uh, critical takes. But there's good stuff there as well. You know? But, you know, my, my, my sort of dream of this landscape would be you know, if you read Jaron Lanier, who's a Silicon Valley guy who very much feels uh, that we as a society have to begin to understand that we're going to have to pay for content. And uh, so that, you know, my hope is that we as users of content will be willing to pay for it with the understanding that it is a little transactional. Why should we expect that somebody's writing for free? Exactly. Right? I mean, it's not, it feels disrespectful to me of the writer. And I think this model, well, the advertising will pay for it, runs a lot of risk about the deterioration of the quality of what we'll have access to. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you see it, you see it in, in journalism, like there's, when you think about uh, citizen journalism and how this, this idea that something like um, Twitter would democratize the entire industry and it would allow for the same quality of, uh, of content to be produced, but, you know, with in far greater numbers, I think there's, that has occurred in some cases. And then in others, it just feels like you're devaluing a, a profession and you, the, the priority is and the focus is... Um, breaking news and, and more content rather than high-quality uh, content that you might have to wait a little longer for, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think the same the same is true for for kind of the literary world, you know? Once you communicate to people who are coming up in the industry that their work isn't valuable and that their their insights aren't valued, then it's a very disheartening thing to realize, and uh, I'm sure it's, it's pushed a number of people out of the industry in, in, in the last few years. Well, I'm going to remain optimistic that, it, <laughs> that, that we are in the middle, you know, this theory that's its form-storm norm. Um, mm-hmm of groups i i'm hoping we're in the in the storm stage but that the norm will become where we understand uh, the value of quality content and therefore there's a sort of a right sizing of people being willing and um willing and able to pay for it I hope so, and I, I think that's true. I think with like with a lot of these things, it's it's a pendulum swing, isn't it? And 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 it has to it has to settle eventually. And I I think once people start to realize that the quality is dipping, or that they're maybe losing some writers or um, columnists that they've enjoyed for so long, then maybe they will come around more to the idea of that. Yeah. So let let's shift over to two other topics. One is I'd like to hear what your uh, what you're sensing are some of the hottest books out there right now. And then I want to talk about Restless Soul. So let's start sure. with what are some of the hottest books up out there? Well, I think, I mean, there's no getting around the, the political tell-alls, which are, you know, <laughs> right. coming thick and fast. <laughs> and which I suppose I do not need any help in, in promotion. From you or me. <laughs> no, no, indeed. I think there's been plenty said about those already. Um I think there's been some some lovely surprises in the last what books like I mean Small Fry, which is uh, Lisa Brennan Jobs' memoir that's that's come out here with with uh, Grove, um, is it has been getting wonderful reviews. Uh, it's about sort of her childhood growing up under the sh- in the shadow of her her far far more famous than than maybe anyone on the planet for a little while uh, father Steve Jobs. Um, 
the incendiaries um reese kwan's novel uh debut novel mm-hmm. i'm reading that been, now yeah i haven't had a chance to read it yet myself but um it's been getting wonderful reviews people people seem to really like it have you read uh Altessa Moshfei's my year of rest and relaxation i did and i'd love to have a conversation with someone about it because i i, I didn't put it down and i put mm. down nine out of ten books i start these days so i read the whole thing and there were parts of it I loved, and then there were parts I found disappointing. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it was an interesting one. I I remember reading the the premise, and I was struggling to think of how you could even get a full length book out of it. But I found myself very sucked into it. Like the voice, I found extremely compelling. I hadn't Me read too. anything of hers before, um, so I found myself by the end of it just you know turning the pages at a ferocious speed because it really it really did suck me in you know and the and the reviews have been generally quite complimentary haven't they and they have they have for the most part you know i mean i think people they're, they're very they're certainly very struck by it but but for the most part the reviews have all been raves and, and positives uh, yeah interesting think. it's a book i find tricky to recommend to a customer mm. because it's the kind of book I, you know, I would always describe myself as a curious reader. So I'll read anything. And if it's doing something either high quality or new or innovative or in another direction, that's good for me. It's like going to a play where the acting's bad, but I love the set. Sure. Um, and, and yet, you know, like you talked about earlier, if I'm asking someone to turn over, I don't know how much the book costs, but let's say $25, I don't want to lead them astray because the book doesn't exactly make a big point with capital letters in a period, but it's an interesting journey. Yes, absolutely. It is almost strangely compelling. You know, I almost (laughs) can't quite put my finger on why. Yeah, but like watching a car accident. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Through your fingers, you know. (laughs) Uh, what else do you see is very popular? Um, I think uh, Sarah Marsh's book Heartland, uh, her her memoir of being uh, you know growing up poor in Kansas and, and sort of the generational poverty yeah. that um, can really uh, I want to read that community. I've I've um, I've read a number of excerpts from it. I haven't sat down to read the whole thing yet, but it's it's very powerful stuff. I mean, she's a wonderful writer, and I think I think it's going to be one of those books that that is really part of the conversation for the the year ahead, you know. I think it takes a much more humane look at a at a segment of of the population than than even something like um Hillbilly uh, elegies. Hillbilly or... elegy as well. Yeah, I think there's something more I don't know, something a little more uh sensationalist and a little more um individualistic about that, whereas this is, is more compassionate and, and contemplative and, and uh yeah, I, I think it's based on what I've read so far, certainly worth checking out. Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting. Yeah. So I wanna take a minute, um or more than a minute, uh, to talk about your debut novel. And I'm going to have you um, describe it for us, but I will share with you and our listeners the story. I am married to a Irishman, 100% Irish-American, born and raised. And this, this story might resonate uh, with other people who either are or know Irishmen. My husband came home from work one day and I asked him how how the day went, and he said it it, it was not a great day. And I I said, well, let's sit down and talk about it. And Kev said, well, we just did. So, 
That sounds familiar. <laughs> so, um, so your book, uh, Restless Souls, uh, which I'll have you describe, but from what I have read so far, is one of the smartest takes I've read, Dan, on male friendship that is neither blind to the amount of emotion that actually lies beneath the banter of some men's conversation, but doesn't pretend that it easily rises or sinks to the level of chatter that you might hear among women. Absolutely, and thank you for for those kind words about it. Um, So Restless Souls is set in... uh Bosnia, at Dublin, and the central California coast in the early to mid-90s. And it's about two Irishmen bringing an old friend of theirs to an experimental PTSD clinic um, around sort of around the um, Big Sur region. And Tom, the friend that they're bringing to this clinic, has been living under siege in Sarajevo, which is the Bosnian capital that was um, bombarded for about four straight years in the early 90s during the Yugoslav Wars. Um, it was about, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people held in this valley city, um, this incredible uh, sort of intersection of, of cultures and religions and, and beliefs for so many generations. Um, and it was all but raised to the ground over this period. And Tom goes there as kind of a war correspondent slash aid worker, somewhat naively thinking that um, he can make a difference and that uh, it'll all be a little bit of an adventure. And what happens is, is very, very different. So by the time he gets back, he's lost an awful lot. He's, he's lost people and, and he's lost kind of his reason in many ways. And these two friends are, are trying this last-ditch attempt to, to get him the help he needs. Um, kind of conventional treatment options have all been uh, exhausted. And they're also a little bit haunted, really, by the, the memory of another friend's suicide a surrogate older brother um, that they had, and they're determined not to ignore the warning signs again. Um, so they go off on this uh, kind of ill-advised but, but well-intentioned um, odyssey to this clinic where there's the, the promise of a, a kind of a miracle cure of sorts. Um, and, and it's sort of about their memories of their friendship and about the war in Bosnia and about kind of mental illness and, and, and how it can... Um, how it can break apart uh, a group, um, even as even one as tightly knit as theirs. We should also mention that the book is quite funny. I mean, these are right. serious topics, but that you know that well-known Irish wit that um, might that you might expect is quite prevalent in in the conversations and in your telling of the story. Uh, what I'm curious about, Dan, is what. Uh, prompted you to set it in Sarajevo? I mean, given your age and the times, um, we have plenty of soldiers in subsequent wars that have experienced PTSD. What was it that prompted you to pick Sarajevo in the 90s? Well, I think I think originally, Roxanne, it was the fact that it was the first major conflict that I remember resonating with me when I was a child. Um, mm-hmm. So I just have 
you know, a half dozen flashes of news reports from the early years of the conflict in, in the former Yugoslavia. And I remember being so struck by them. Um, I guess at that point, I would have been used to seeing dispatches, you know, and as used as you can be to any of this when you're five or six years old, but I was used to seeing dispatches from the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and those news reports always seemed to be a person standing in front of the aftermath when, when clean-up and, and recovery had mm, begun. But not the war. Where, exactly, exactly. And, and with this, it just... It, it, felt inexplicable to me that, you know, this this vibrant cosmopolitan city in an era of breaking news, really nearly at that point, could serve as a backdrop. Mm. Its destruction could serve as a backdrop to news reports for months, years on end, and, and nothing would really change. I, I couldn't get my head around it, and I think that stayed with me until years later when I got a chance to visit the city, and I sort of just fell in love with the place. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I sat down to write about a story like this about somebody kind of waking up to the, the brutal realities of of conflict having gone there um for, you know, some of the wrong reasons. That was that was the conflict that I kept coming back to. Dan, when do you get to write? I mean you have a full time job. What what's your how do you squeeze in the writing time? I try to do early mornings, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that works and then it doesn't work and then you have the guilt of when it doesn't work, you're thinking, God, if I just hadn't hit that snooze button with her five or six or ten times I'd be up and I'd have got another 500 words done but so it's it's one of those things where I'm when I get into the rhythm of it and I get a few good days behind me that it feels great and and you can kind of propel yourself from there um but then when a week goes by and you get nothing done you you, <laughs> you feel like you really let it all go so um it, it's become a morning thing for me though I'm actually uh, a night owl and myself and my wife are both, both terrible about getting to bed on time so we uh we've kind of had to had to uh change our schedules a little bit with that. Mm, it's like you have a baby. <laughs> exactly, you know. <laughs> at least for that hour. Or two, at least for that good. at least for that hour or two. And so Dan, yeah. when when the book gets the book has gotten reviewed. Yeah, yeah, the book's got reviewed. It came out in the UK um and Ireland and Australia with with sort of a, a larger publishing house. Um and I went back there to do some stuff with it. And then with a smaller independent press over here in, in America a couple of months later. So, yeah. How does that make been, you feel about reviewers? Although every review I read was highly positive. Yeah, they, they, were, they were quite kind about it, which I was very grateful for. I mean, of course, though, there's always people that, that aren't into it, and, and, and that's fine, too. You know, I think it's rare when I read reviews that I stop reading and I think, oh, this this critic has it in for the author of the book. You know, occasionally mm-hmm. you'll get that sense, but it is quite rare. So um, I never, even in the more negative takes on my book, I didn't really feel, I didn't feel personally uh, victimized by it. It was mm. just part, well, of that's the, good. part of the thing, you know, um, and, and you, you take it and you do not, and you don't publicize that one on social media. You keep it as quiet as you can and then you, you, you roll on from there, you know. Now, did you put did you put your book in bookmarks? I didn't, but one of the the team did. Okay, because yeah. I I forgot to check that um, yeah. before I came in uh, to record it. Well, you know, I just I just started it, but I love Irish writing and am thoroughly engrossed in the story and look forward to spending more time with the three of them and learning about Gabrielle, who's the fourth uh, friend that you know, that you mentioned in your description. But congratulations, Dan, on really just a lovely debut novel. Those are not easy to get out in the world. Oh, thank you so much, Roxanne. That's, that's so nice of you to say. 
so here's my last, uh, well, no, I'm going to have three quick questions for you. Sure. No, absolutely. Far away. One is, uh, the question I ask all our guests uh, is, what's the book that changed your life? Book that changed your life. Can I give... Can I give three because I can't remember the order that I read them in? Of course. So I remember when I was a, a teenager and I, I read around the same time, I think maybe it was about 15 or 16, and I read sort of those three big magical realist epics, um, Hundred Years Solitude, The Syndrome, and Midnight's Children. Mm-hmm. Not obviously the only three, but the three that were in the house and the three that I, I moved from one to the next. And I don't know that they changed my life, but I was certainly, it was the first time I'd ever read books that were that um, expansive and all-encompassing mm. and, and wild and, and vibrant and and um, just bursting with characters and incidents and, and um, sort of generational trauma and inheritance. And it just, it felt like, you know, more than I thought could be contained in novels, just these in- incredible things. Um, even carrying them around with me as I read them felt like there was more in them than any book had the right to hold. So I just They've always they've stuck with me, and I, I suppose with good reason. They're they're, they're classics, you know. They weren't um, they weren't uh, cult discoveries, but mm-hmm. but um, uh, they're books that I actually have not read since I read them the first time. I'm looking forward to, to sitting down again with them someday, you know. That'll be interesting. I don't I don't tend to reread books, but the books that that I felt really resonated with me, I'm almost afraid to reread them because mm. I don't I want to stay with the the impression that it left on me when I read it, which is also something about who you were when you first read it, right? So I'll be curious if you reread it, reread those three, and if they'll resonate with you in as important a way. Absolutely. No, I, I totally know what you mean. There's, there's a fear almost of, of going back. It's, a, it's like a fear. It's like reading back over something you were excited to write, uh, and the, you know, all the, the rawness and the energy of the first draft, and you really don't want to see all the, the, the cracks and the, the issues you might have later on, you know? Yeah. And, Dan, are you working on a new book yet? I am, yeah. I'm about, um, I guess I'm about halfway through a new, a new novel at the moment. Um, it's, it sort of goes uh, in, in bursts. Um, I've, I have good weeks and I have, I have slow weeks. But um, it's exciting to be, to be working on a new project, you know? Well, that's great. I'll look forward to hearing about it. And we've been talking with Dan Sheehan, who is an Irish fiction writer. Um, I had in, originally invited him uh, to be on Just the Right Book because he's the bookmarks editor at LitHub, and I love LitHub. I love uh, the bookmarks section. But then it turns out he's also this gifted debut novelist, so we just ended up with a lovely uh, bonus. And Dan, thank you for taking the time uh, to be on Just the Right Book. Absolutely. My pleasure, Roxanne. Thank you. Thanks again to Dan Sheehan. Now it's time to hear from Ann Bogle. We are delighted today to welcome to Just the Right Book Ann Bogle, who makes readers all over the world wildly happy, and she does that in several ways. One is she's the writer of an extremely popular blog called The Modern Mrs. Darcy. If you haven't subscribed uh, yet, I urge you to do that. She's also the host of a fantastic uh, podcast called What Should I Read Next? And if that wasn't enough to keep Anne busy, she's got a new book out, uh, which is called I Rather Be Reading. So there are a zillion ways that Anne's making readers all over the world happy, and I'm delighted 
uh, that you took the time to join us on Just the Right Book. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. It's good to be back. And so one of the one of the questions that pops in my head as I think about um, your reading life is has now turned what was a uh, passion of yours into a series of activities that are more like businesses. Has that changed how you feel about reading or changed how you read? That's interesting. People do ask me all the time what it's like to read for a living, which many days is in a very real sense what I do. And when most readers ask, they think it sounds dreamy. And Mm. Roxanne, you know, in many respects, (laughs) you read for a living as well. And there are many things that are wonderful about it. But something I've learned along the way is that uh, that old chestnut, if you find work you're passionate about, you'll never work a day in your life, is actually not true. Mm. It turns out if you do work you're passionate about, you are working all the time. So something that has really helped me, um, as much as I enjoy reading for a living, I've, I've learned that if I read like it's my job, I don't enjoy it. So what I love about my work and what I imagine you find to be true also in, on your podcast and in the bookstore is just talking to readers who read because they love it really keeps me loving it for its own sake and not because it is in a real sense, my profession. Yeah, I I would agree with absolutely everything you said. The element I would add that I find is it makes me finish less books than I once did because I either have to move on to the next because they're an author that's going to be on the podcast or an author coming to R.J. Julia's or because I think it's important for me to have read. And I don't know that that's a bad thing, but it's a different thing. I really relate to that, and I'm glad you said it. I talk to a lot of people who say that they don't feel like it's okay to begin a book and quit it. They feel like it's their obligation as a reader to finish books. And that is probably the thing that has changed most since before I read, in a sense, heavy air quotes here, professionally and after. Now I feel like I start so many books, I just can't finish them all. And I'm much freer to give something a try knowing I can set it aside. Mm. And I just, I feel a lot of freedom to experiment and not every experiment pans out or ends up being a book that I will love and adore. But I really relate to that. I think I finish half of what I start now. Yeah. I, I don't even know if mine's half. I think mine, I, I, I actually might start keeping track. I think mine might be one out of 10. Oh, wow. Well, In my personal reading journal, and I'm a big believer in tracking your reading, I've seen so many readers get more out of their reading lives when they can see it on paper and just not rely on their memories. I write down books that I read uh, 25 or more pages of, but I've been thinking of writing down books before I even open them, before I even know, just so I can get more accurate information. I know that makes me sound super nerdy, but we're all readers here. No, 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 no. To me, that sounds... Actually, you're making me even more obsessively aspirational about how I record my books than I already am. (laughs) So for those of you who haven't read Anne's latest book, I'd Rather Be Reading, whose subtitle is The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, it's a, you know, for for someone who's a reader, it it accomplished a bunch of things. But one that um, I enjoyed the most is I found myself smiling. You know, like literally caught myself smiling as I was uh, reading your essays and 
And one of the ones that I'd love for you to share a synopsis of it with us is the fact that your starter house that you and your husband bought was literally next door to a library. And it, it, it share with our listeners how that impacted your life. Absolutely. There's an essay in the book called The Books Next Door. And you know what's so funny, Roxanne, is it wasn't really until the course of writing this collection that I started to connect some dots. Until I started writing this book, it never occurred to me that perhaps in the Malcolm Gladwell sense, like he writes in, is it Outliers? Yes. His book about With 10,000 hours. That, Yes, he's very well known for that, but he also has written a book where he says, you know, so many things that we think are matters of chance Mm. are just a series of inevitable events, and I think perhaps it's not coincidence that I do what I do now, and the first house of my adult life was immediately next door to the library. I could literally, like, throw a baseball and hit the building it was in out my kitchen window. I mean, my kids would get in so much trouble if they did that, but it was possible. And I just, I hadn't realized what a significant factor that was in my life until I started writing this collection. I knew that we loved it and depended on it and used it extremely heavily. I mean, all the circulation workers knew my whole family's names. There were periods of time where we went there literally every single day, but I just didn't realize like, oh, maybe it's not coincidence that I work in books now. But once upon a time, my husband and I were babies when we got married right out of college. And we happened to buy a house from a family friend. She was the executrix of her old friend's estate. And I like the story there. We bought the house from a uh, spunky 93-year-old widow whose last significant purchase had been a shiny red sports car. So I like to think the house had good vibes. I do not know how she felt about the library next door. But we bought it because um, it was dropped into our laps. The price was right. It was kind of dumpy, but we fixed it up, and we thought it was nice that it was next door to the library. And very quickly, we realized this thing that we took as a, you know, a nice bonus, you know, kind of a, not a bad neighborhood if it has a library in it, turned out to be a linchpin of our existence in that neighborhood. And um, we thought it was nice when we moved in. We weren't sure we'd be able to live without it if we moved out, but the house only had one bathroom, and we had four kids at that time, so we decided to take a deep breath and move something like 1.2 miles away from the library, which sounds dreamy to a lot of readers, but for us, it was devastating to be Mm. that far away. So there's a couple of different things that your story reminds me of. So I grew up in a house, one of six kids, and for a while, we lived in a place where there was one bathroom. And I think about that that wasn't considered that odd then. And this is in the 50s. It wasn't considered that odd that there'd be one bathroom in a house. I think we've gotten to the point where we look at houses and if everybody doesn't have their own bathroom, that it's not, that it's a problem. I think you're right. And I thought about that all the time when we'd have friends over to visit for the first time and they'd think, oh, family of six, only one bathroom. And that's exactly what I talked about because we had an interesting mix in our neighborhood of older couples that had raised their kids there who are now grown and been in the neighborhood since the 40s or 50s and families like us that were a couple generations behind who were just moving in and, um, you know, in their 20s, some of us were starting families. And that's what I told myself when we seemed to be struggling to make it work. Or I'd tell myself, um, you know, if we lived in Manhattan, this would be a mansion. Mm, Exactly. Nevertheless. Obviously, it's a privilege. I mean, I'm I'm being facetious. I think we appreciate the fact that lots of people 
don't have multiple bathrooms for their family. But I do think it's interesting how that's changed over even my lifetime. It's so interesting. And it was interesting to move into a neighborhood where so many of the residents had been there for many, many years. And I know since we left just five years ago, it's turned over even more. But but it was so interesting to hear the history of the neighborhood. Like our driveway used to be a through street, and they tell us how the building the library was in used to be a school and how the neighborhood changed when the library mm. went in. And it was just so interesting to hear these families who had lived on our street and who knew the people who lived in our home before us reminisce about like walking their kids next door to the library when it opened and how it used to only be open during the school day, but then eventually um, they tried something risky and started keeping it open one night late a week. It was just so interesting to hear what happened in our neighborhood and in our library before our time. Well, you also talk about in your book how your parents were both readers but had very different routes to acquisition. And uh, you describe your father having a, a study or a library filled with books and your mom having them sort of in the back of her closet in in sort of piles. Describe for us what drove each of those differences. It's interesting. It did take me a while to catch on as a kid that while my parents were both readers, they approached the actual books themselves in very different ways. And I think at a certain point, I asked a question. Well, I talk about it in I'd Rather Be Reading. My dad had his home office, his study in the second floor of our house, and there was this enormous wardrobe in there. I mean, you could have put fur coats in there and, you know, climbed through the Narnia mm-hmm. if you were in a certain kind of, of novel. And he had paperbacks stacked three rows deep. But I remember asking my mom, okay, I can... I." see where dad's books are. Like, where are yours? And she explained to me that my father had grown up in a family where they went to the bookstore and they bought their books and they weren't big library users, but her family went to the library. And she came from a family of five. Maybe that was part of it. But, um, I mean, I have memories of her father, my grandfather, taking me to the library book sale from a very early age. Uh, He'd get these boxes of remainders that were 10 cents each and distribute them to all the grandkids. I don't know. My mom thought about this. We've never talked about this, but I came home with a a lot of books from him that were then possessions in the house. My mom didn't really like to accumulate books as her possessions, Mm. but it was very interesting to me to see how my own parents' childhoods really impacted the way they they brought books into Mm. their lives, even when they were adults, even now, really. So to what extent Given that you have this sort of duality of experience growing up, to what extent is having the books around you important? Physically be part of your day-to-day life, old books that you've read as opposed to returning them to the library. Uh, I'm such a big fan of keeping a reading log. I I love having physical books that I've read and loved in my in my office, in my home, in my spaces, um, you know, on my coffee table just so I can remember <laughs> But, you know, surround yourself with things you love. It's William Morris. Never have anything in your home that you do not believe to be useful or um, believe to be beautiful. And I think good books can be both. So I love to surround myself with good books. And as a parent, I also love to surround my children with reading material so Mm. that they're never absent of the suggestion that they could be reading right now. I just, if I can't see a book, it, my brain forgets 
that mm. it exists. And that's why the reading log has become so important to me, because if I own a book, it's on the bookshelf. I know where to find it. I can walk in the room sometimes. I do this before I talk to guests on the podcast when I'm thinking about what to recommend. I just like to scan my shelves just so I can be reminded mm. of all the good books out there that might connect with a certain guest. But if that book went to the library, then I don't have any way of seeing it and remembering that it exists and I've read it and what it's like. And that's why I like to keep those careful records now just so I can remember that it's like a travel log. I can remember that I went there, that I visited that story. So you get a lot of letters and comments um, on your blog and your uh, podcast comments. Do you fi- Are you finding a lot of people are keeping book logs? Yes, I am. And I'd like to think I've converted a few people. We've done a reading challenge every year for the first uh, past few years, and we've really tried to encourage people to... Um, find books that are good for them, and we give them some guidelines, but also to track their reading because we can tell ourselves stories about our reading lives that may or may not be true, and I am as guilty of this as anyone. Um, I forget about the books I didn't like, or Mm -hmm. I forget about books that I didn't finish, or I can forget about a great book, and without keeping a written log of what I've been reading, um, I probably could only remember a quarter of what I've read off the top of my head, even if it's something that I really loved and enjoyed. And something else I like about keeping the written log is it's so much easier to see patterns in what you're reading. It's easier Mm. to see if you're reading a certain genre, if you're never reading a certain genre, if you're only reading men or women or British authors or Australian or uh, white or, you know, American Southern. You can see those patterns on the page. It's like the data doesn't lie. Um, But I found that my memory is not as... It's not as reliable as I would like, mm. and I have a very hard time determining the patterns of my reading life. Um, it's much easier when I can see it printed on the page. And I think this is important because I want to read widely, and I want to read diversely, and I want to read a nice mix of old and new. And that, that journal, it's like a food log. It really keeps me accountable and lets me see the truth of what I'm actually reading. It also helps me give good book recommendations, and I think that's really important. Yeah, that th- that's – and do you write down anything about the book, or it's a, it's a list? I have learned that if I start making it complicated, I will not follow through. Yeah, so I would think minimum, so. Yeah, yeah, and I really – it's so valuable to have that I just really need to make sure that I follow through on the bare bones. So I write down uh, the title, whether or not I finished it, the dates I read it, and the format. Uh, like whether I listened as an audiobook or read as an ebook, uh, print is my default. But then sometimes I'll write a blog post or I'll talk about a book at length on the podcast or I will keep quotes sometimes. Sometimes I read a, a kind of book, especially nonfiction, where I just really want to take a lot of notes and I let myself do that too, but that's not my norm. But it's available as an option yeah. if I feel so inspired. But the important thing is getting the title down. Because if I can see the title, I can remember the book or I know where to get more information. But without the title, I might You're not lost. be able to remember yeah, that I read it. Now, I and noticed, I that, but it's true. I noticed that you've uh, been to quite a few places touring with the book. What's that been like for you? Oh, it's been great. I've, I've done events in the past, but I've never been to so many bookstores uh, and met so many readers in such a short time period. And it's wonderful to be in so many different independent bookstores back to back. You can see the similarities and the 
contrasts so strongly when the time period is compressed. And I just love meeting readers and hearing about their reading lives and the difference good books have made in their life. Uh, sometimes the difference one particular good book has made in their life. And people have come to have books signed and they brought books for their whole book club or a favorite teacher or the media director at their library or the school's library. Uh, they've come with their bowling clubs and their book clubs and their reading bubby buddies. And it's interesting, the What Should I Read Next podcast demographic, I found that we have a whole lot of intergenerational listening. I have a ton of mothers and daughters come together to signings. I had a mother and grandmother come to an event last Saturday, how mm. they, they found the podcast and they started reading together and bonding over books. And it's one thing to hear those stories in your email, and I love it, but it's another to get to talk to the people right in front of you and be able to see them and interact with them in person and see the relationship between them and hear their stories in person. It's been amazing. You know, the other thing that uh, I wonder if this happened, I did a, I was on a book uh, radio show for about 20 years uh, uh, on Connecticut Public Radio. And people would come up to me when they came to the store, or they heard my voice in the supermarket or something, and, and they would be either disappointed or delighted that I looked in person different than what they conjured up. Did you run into any of that <laughs> where people thought you'd be like some other way? Yes, I do hear that a lot. The thing I hear the most is but I didn't think you'd be so tall. Yeah, That's what yeah. I hear a lot. I'm 5'9", I'm and I guess you don't hear that through the radio. But but I I do hear that a lot. That's funny that it happens to you, too. I, I would imagine, especially on the radio, that happens when you really have to go out of your way to Google what a radio host looks like. I think it's easier when we're sending out a podcast newsletter, perhaps. Yeah. But, yes, it is interesting to, for people to tell you what their misconception was and how different you are in in reality. And how did writing this book uh, change you in any way? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's made me so conscious of my own journey as a reader. I mean, mm -hmm. in many ways, this is the story of one reader um, growing up as a reader from my earliest days, uh, you know, like reading books with my dad. He was awfully fond of a book called Who's Got the Apple that I think must have been a sleeper hit because I've never talked to another reader who read this book in their family. <laughs> as a child. I, I've never heard of it. I'm not surprised. A man in a striped suit was walking past a fruit store. That's how it begins. And that was like my dad's catchphrase that he'd repeat all the time at completely inappropriate times because that was, I don't know, that's what we read together growing up. And I didn't really appreciate how unique that was. I didn't realize how supportive my father was in my reading life um, until I really started this collection. So that's been really interesting. Also, just to reflect back on how my parents raised me as a reader. They're not um, quite as um, book nerdy as I am, and I've kind of thought of it as my own thing. And when you dig into, well, when I dug into my history as a reader, I realized that was not the case. So starting with just reading books with my parents as a kid, and then moving on to the days when I was finishing books under the covers with a flashlight when I was supposed to be sleeping, and then, you know, moving on into my school years and my first house by the library where I really had to establish my own reading life because no one was telling me what to read anymore. I, You think it's your history because you lived it, but I'd really never reflected on it to the extent that I had when it was when I was writing the essays in this collection. And that's been really, it's been fun. It's been mm. funny sometimes to look back at the, uh, the eras I've come through. And it's been um, really nostalgic in a way I didn't expect. I try really hard not to get sappy in the book. There's yeah, some which you essays, don't. But I you hope, don't. 
Thank at you all. for that. Yeah. I hope there are some funny ones too, and I hope that it's always, always relatable. But I just really wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting all the emotions that came with writing about the reading life. And I'm a reader. I talk to readers about mm-hmm. the emotions of the reading life every week on what should I read next. And yet when it came to my own reading life, I was surprised. Now you talk about uh, one of the subtitles, uh, one of the words in the subtitle of your book are the delights and dilemmas. What's the dilemma of a reading life? Oh, was that singular, Roxanne? There are so many dilemmas. And I'm sure that as a bookstore owner and a book podcaster yourself, you hear this from readers like I do. Um, we get emails and reviews and people comment at book signings all the time and say, I'm so glad I found you because otherwise I would never have the massive problem of my enormous to-be-read list. I'm not quite sure how to handle it, but I love that I have to figure it out. This was, you know, this wasn't a problem a few years ago, but now that I found, you know, the right bookstore or the right podcast or the right reading buddy, they have too many things to read instead of not enough. Yeah. And they think this is a wonderful thing, but I mean, it's a serious dilemma figuring out what to read next when you have, you know, giant stacks in your bedroom of books that you really want to read top priority. Yeah. I I, I think that, you know, I consider it a luxury and it sounds like, um, you know, many of your listeners and readers do also. And sometimes I find myself feeling frustrated, like, why can't I make more time just to read? Because like everybody else, we're all so busy doing what we're doing. You don't end up with quite the amount of time. I feel like I don't end up with quite the amount of time that I used to give to reading without my being very deliberate about it being almost a scheduled thing. Oh, do you want to hear something terrible? Sure. I'm three weeks into book tour. I have another few weeks ahead of me, and I am not sure that I have ever read less than I have in the mm. last few weeks. Yeah. Because during my usual reading time, I'm, I'm out. I'm, you know, I'm spending six hours a day sometimes in bookstores, which is amazing. But it, it's not good for finishing those books. I don't think I finished a book in like two weeks. And I'm sure for some people, that's completely par for the course. But for me, that's really, really weird. Yeah, that's so a I problem. But my poor reading life, I'm talking about books all the time, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. But I'm not finishing them at quite the clip I was. That's funny. So you in the, in the uh, book, you do talk about that you worked in a bookstore uh, for a day, for a whole day. A whole day. What'd you learn? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, I learned that so many of the bookstore jokes are absolutely true. Just in the course of one day, so many readers walked through the door and said, um, I heard the book on NPR. The author was really, really funny. I think the cover was yellow and there was some kind of pun in it. Mm-hmm. It just came out in the past few weeks. And I mean, that's not very much to go on. Or uh, my book club's reading it. It's blue. It just came out in paperback. I think it's by a man, but I'm not sure. Yeah. The story happens in a... You know, like they're all, everybody's rich. And, and with just this much information to go on, um, the booksellers would be able to solve these mysteries. In fact, I got to help chime in and solve these mysteries, and I thought that was really, really fun. I love crossword puzzles, and I felt like it was the same thing, but in person, in trying to find the right book instead of the right clue. Yeah. Uh, at one point, um, at one point, if I ever thought about, early in the bookstore days, if I thought about writing an ad, I was thinking I would say, we can help you find the book if all you know is that the jacket's blue and the is in the title. Yeah. Yeah, and those conversations are um, fun and funny and really unexpected. I just 
I just thought that was uh, funny because it was true. It's something I had heard that people will walk through the door and say, I don't know, but it's blue. And then sure enough, that really happens every single hour. So I enjoyed that. But what really surprised me, you own a bookstore, Roxanne, this won't surprise you, but as a reader who usually comes through the front door and it, you know, is the, the browser, the consumer, the person who gives the money at the cash register, who is not allowed in the back of the room. Mm. I just really did not realize the intricate choreography that's mm. necessary to bring all these books from all these different publishers, all these different authors. And of course, every book itself is a labor of love that goes way, way back and involves many, many people. But, but just the vast, uh, I mean, it's like a ballet, like getting mm. all these books from all these different places and bringing them together in a highly curated, thoughtful selection with all these shelf talkers and staff to recommend them. And then like mugs and pens and ideal bookshelf posters and sometimes crossword puzzles if you, you know, don't have book browsers to solve your readerly dilemmas for at home and you need some other way to exercise your brain. And, um, Every Tuesday, new books come out, sometimes even more often these days. And really, until I spent that day at the bookstore watching um, the UPS driver come three times a day with different mm. loads from different origination points and unpacking the books and, you know, checking for quality and deciding they were going to be stocked and placing orders and fulfilling requests and customers coming in and picking up reserves into, um, you know, making a little jewel box of a bookstore for me that I could just walk through the door and... It all I, works. I didn't realize how much I took the experience for granted. Yes. I mean, it seemed so many things that look so easy are the result of really hard work. And I didn't realize how much hard work went into creating what we think of as an uh, independent bookstore. Yeah. One of the things that um, I always say to our staff that when you're on the floor, meaning you're uh, where customers are, that it's theater. And the goal is to make it all look seamless and easy. But sometimes when people say to me, well, how many people work here? And I'll say, oh, I think we have about 35 in our Madison store. And they're like, 35 people? What are they all doing? I said, well, they're ordering the books. They're keeping the website. They're receiving the books. They're, you know, they're uh, writing newsletters about the books. They're managing the staff that are doing all this. They're, you know, we're open 12 hours a day. You have to have two shifts of people uh, to cover the store. Yes, and because I've been to so many bookstores, um, and I've been to a lot of bookstores, I love bookstores. My family will drive hours out of our way to visit a bookstore that we've heard about, that people have told us we have to visit. I've been to so many bookstores doing it right. And for that reason, I didn't appreciate... I thought I knew, Roxanne, mm-hmm. but I just did not grasp the extent of the work that goes on beyond the, behind the scenes. What, what's been... People won't know all the stores you went to. What was your favorite bookstore that you went to? Oh, my favorite bookstore? That's a really difficult question. Would you rather not pick, Anne? <laughs> All right, let me tell you a few. I'm sure I'm going to forget some. Okay. Um, of course, some destination stores that we visited on vacation. Of course, I loved going to the Strand. Yes, of course. I was able to go to Malaprops in Asheville last year for the first time, and I was just back there for book tour. I uh, really loved it. I was driving through um, the middle of Georgia last week and realized that we were going to be very, very close to Athens, and I'd never been to Avid, so we had to pop in. I got to see the Story Shop, a completely magical children's bookstore in Monroe, Georgia, Mm. uh, on book tour. Uh, It's so... I would just really encourage you, if your ears pick up at the idea of a magical children's bookstore, 
Google it and look at the pictures. They have a hobbit hole. Uh, I signed books through the wardrobe into Narnia where they typically have story hour. You follow the yellow brick road to the bathroom and Harold oh has written God. all over the walls with his purple crown. Oh, and there's a library ladder where you can climb up way high to grab beautiful children's classics off the shelves. And they keep the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack handy if you want to have your bell on her ladder moments. Oh, my God. And what's the name it's, of that it's store? Great. It's called The Story Shop. It's in Monroe, Georgia. And it's a destination. The owners were telling me how um, for Valentine's Day, a New Yorker had flown with her husband from New York to Atlanta, driven an hour and a half to the story shop in Monroe, spent the day there, flew home. That was their, that was their destination. I mean, we're wow. book lovers. This is what we do. Or wow. dream of doing, depending. Well, Anne, I have a million other questions that I'd, I'd want to ask you, but I think I'm going to just have to encourage everybody to pick up the book. And I do think... Um, I do think it's it's fun that people are buying it as gifts because it is the kind of book that a reader would just appreciate having the pleasure. It is like sitting with a friend and having them talk about it. The two chapters that um, really, well, they all resonated with me, but the two will just leave people um, wanting more about this is the chapter on rereading books and I loved your chapter on your reading twin. Oh, thank you. I, I, I thought that was great. I think that it's something as a reader we all long for as a reading twin who you can be sure reads the same way as you and you could talk over the books or get uh, recommendations. But I don't want to lose you before I have you share with our listeners what you're reading and loving right now. Here, let me tell you about the books I'm in the middle of. Okay, good. First of all, I have to say that one of my favorites of the year is A Place for Us by Fatima Mirza. Yeah. Loved it. Also really loved Harry's Trees by John Cohen. So I finished those for spring, summer. So it's been a little bit, but... No, those are pretty good. In place for us... Um, we had interviewed Sarah Jessica Parker, actually, who's the – she started her own imprint that published a place for us uh, under the Hogarth imprint. Yes, and, and I loved that episode. I was so glad you had her on. Oh, thank you. Um, I did think that Fatima did just a great job with that book. I totally was immersed in it also. I'm glad to hear it, and I think we're both in good company. I'm really pleased to see the amount of recognition that book has gotten because I, it's really gratifying to see books that uh, are so well done make their way out into the world and really connect with the readers that feel like it was written just for them. But the ones I'm actually reading and very excited about right now is the new Danny Shapiro. It's called Inheritance. It doesn't come out till April, but I was thrilled to pick up a copy. Wasn't that unbelievable? Yes, I knew that. I knew that she discovered a secret in her personal life involving her family, but I had no idea what it was. I hadn't seen her discuss it publicly. So just even on the jacket, it went into the details of what happened. It started with an Ancestry.com test that um, gave her a doozy of a surprise. And I'm about halfway through, and I'm really enjoying it. I love her writing. Um, I, Hourglass was one of my favorites of a couple of years ago. Yeah, her book really about her marriage. Yeah, just so... Um, Beautiful and wistful and reflective and thoughtful without being savvy. Uh, really gorgeous prose. Those are my, those are my check boxes, and she just hits them all. I'm currently reading Whiskey When You're Dry by John Larison. Um, I'm reading this as the hardcover, and I didn't want to pack a book with me to take on book tour because 
I come home with so many books from the indies I visit that you can't take 425 <laughs> pages on the road with you when you know you're going to have to bring it back lest you abandon it in an airport someplace, and that's just sad. So something exciting just happened. I'm very curious to see where it goes. And I'm also reading the new Diane Setterfield that I think comes out this fall, unless it's early winter. It's I think it does. Once Upon a River. And are you when, liking when it? it comes out? I think it comes out winter. Well, it should, because like the 13th tale so far, it's... Uh, <sighs> It's absorbing, and it's a little bit eerie, very gently creepy. She's so good at mood and atmosphere. I'm really enjoying it and want to find out what happens next. So one thing I want to – I don't think I mentioned this to you. I know we spoke in between podcasts offline, but when I was on your podcast – and for those of our listeners that haven't heard the podcast, one of the things that Anne does at the end is you tell her a book you loved and a book you didn't love. And there's a third question I think you ask. What you're reading now. Right. And uh, I sometimes I ask readers what they want to be different in their reading life. Oh, okay. Or if there's anything they want more of in their reading life. But you recommended a book to me that I hadn't known uh, that I picked up called I Am, I Am, that I adored Anne. I mean, I I began, probably like a lot of your fans, began to think of you as like a magician because as a reader and as a reader exposed to as many books as I'm exposed to, the idea that you came up with a book that I didn't know and that was the perfect choice to me made me really think you were a magician about this. <laughs> so kudos to you for that. I mean, that's not, it's one thing to be picking out books for people that are not living in a bookstore like I do. Uh, and it's another to do that. So that, that was pretty cool. I was very impressed, Dan. Well, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And if you did really enjoy that Maggie O'Farrell, my favorite of hers, not saying it will be your favorite, but my favorite of hers that has a lot in common with that book, even if it is fiction, is called This Must Be the Place. All right. It's a I'm novel gonna, she wrote immediately before I Am, I Am, I Am. All right, I'm going to read that. I'm writing it down. The other thing that it made me, what you just said, you've got another great chapter on called Being Book Bossing, <laughs> which I loved, you know, because those of us that are readers can can sort of tilt over the line to become a little bossy about what people uh, should read. And one of the things that you talk about in the book and one of the things that our booksellers and booksellers in all independents across the country know is when somebody asks what should they read next, you don't just come up with a book. You need to ask some questions. There isn't a book that, you know, the books are not one size fits all by any means. That would be much easier, but not nearly as much fun. Yeah. Well, and I'm just very grateful uh, for you taking the time to be on Just the Right Book. We've been talking to Anne Bogle, who's got a book out called I'd Rather Be Reading. Uh, she's got a podcast that's listened to by hundreds of thousands of people called What Should I Read Next? She's got a wildly popular blog called Modern Mrs. Darcy. Uh, you know, Anne, I just think what you're doing for all of our reading uh, lives is keeping us uh, informed with too many books on our nightstands or shelves or wherever. And, you know, the world's going to be a better place if people have more books that they're reading. I'm sure of that. I sure hope so. Well, thanks for joining us. It has been my pleasure. Thanks. Have fun on the rest of your book tour. 
Oh, thank you. I'm hoping my travels are going to take me up to you, well, RJ Julie. I would if love not, that. I'm going to have to book a ticket and fly on in. No, no. You know what, Anne? We'll arrange that. We'll arrange for you to come up to RJ Julia's because then we'll get to me. I won't have to say to you, oh, I didn't know you were so tall. And <laughs> you'll get to uh, charm all of our readers as well. So I'll, I'll make it that happen. My pleasure. All right. Take care, Anne. Thank you. You too. Thanks again to both of our guests, Ann Bogle and Dan Sheehan, for joining us today. Ann Bogle's book, I'd Rather Be Reading, is available now. Make sure you check out her blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, and Ann's podcast, What Should I Read Next? Be sure to pick up Dan Sheehan's book, Restless Souls, available now, and check him out on lithub.com. Please continue to send us your notes. You can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. Hey, Just the Right Book listeners, this is Christina Torres, the show's producer. And here at Just the Right Book podcast, we love books. And we love going to our favorite indie bookstores to browse the staff suggestions. It's what they call shelf talkers in the book biz. Well, imagine having your own personal bookseller who handpicks books just for you. Just the Right Book subscription service is a personalized book of the month club that delivers just the right book to you or the voracious reader in your life's mailbox. How does it work? Well, first you go to justtherightbook.com and choose a 4, 6, or 12-month subscription. Then tell us about your reading tastes and preferences, favorite authors, genres, books, and more. Then your own personal bookseller will send you books picked just for you. And if a book is not just right, no problem. It can be exchanged for another. So... Go to justtherightbook.com, pour a cup of tea or a glass of wine, sink into your favorite chair, and experience the pleasure of a great read.